Hello everyone, welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm Paul Keelan. And I'm Jordan Puga. And today we're going to be talking about Oliver Stone's classic football flick, Any Given Sunday. Any Given Sunday is our first venture into more adult sports films. And it came out at the tail end of the 90s, December 22nd, 1999. Such a great year for film, so many classics. It's one of the all-time great years of cinema, and there's even been a lot of books written about it. So it came out at the tail end of this fantastic year, and it did quite well. It made $100 million worldwide, and on its opening weekend, it came in first place. It beat out a weird hodgepodge of films, a lot of kids' films, some of my favorite films. I want to start with the fourth place film, actually, because I remember seeing this with you and your mom around Christmas time, and it's Man on the Moon, Jim Carrey's big breakout in a serious role, and I really love that film. Do you remember seeing that film still? Yeah, I do really like that movie, because like you said, that was uh, still Jim Carrey being doing a comedic role, but such a departure from the Curry that we know. And like on that subject, one of my mom's favorite stories is what time she took you, me, and our friend, I think it was Casey, to go see the Ace Ventura 2 with Casey's mom and that they were the two women laughing the loudest in the theater when uh, Ace Ventura comes out the, the rhino's ass. Could not believe that they brought us to see this this movie. <laughs> and so I remember seeing Man on the Moon and it being so different, the take of, uh, of Andy Kaufman. Two completely different Jim Carrey movies. I think a lot of my connections to it are from that theater experience though, as a kid. I mean, I, I remember cracking up still. It's just so funny. I love that character. I wish they would have a reboot with Ace Ventura like they are with like Bill and Ted right now. <laughs> also that came out this weekend was The Green Mile, which I also saw once again with your parents. This is a strange memory, but I remember seeing it with everyone, but I went with the adults to see The Green Mile for whatever reason, and all the like other kids went to see another movie. That's how weird I was as a kid. <laughs> I swear. I remember the day because someone was sick and hung over and needed a chicken sandwich at Wendy's or something. I remember like the weirdest details. I remember these things very clearly. And I swear, I remember it was like me and your parents in The Green Mile and everyone else went to go see some other movie. And I was like, no, I want to go see The Green Mile. So I was this like weird precaution. I'm, I don't know. I'm like looking at this list and I wouldn't be surprised if it was like Toy Story 2 or something like that that we'd probably seen before or some shit to go see again. And you're probably like not having it. <laughs> you're probably, like, no, I'm not seeing Toy Story 2 for the fifth time. You're probably right on point. I remember waiting after for like everyone else to get out of whatever it was. It could have been Toy Story 2 or Stuart Little, I guess he not so much. Maybe Bicentennial Man. No, so I'm looking at this list and like yeah. I agree. Stuart Little, Little wasn't one I saw in theaters. I was when we were a little too old. Old, I guess. But the one that stood out for me was Sleepy Hollow, I remember seeing in theaters and really liking it. That's the one with Johnny Depp and Christina Ricci, right? Yeah, that is. That one was great and really moody. Yeah. That's probably it because I saw Sleepy Hollow with my parents and I saw Bicentennial Man with my parents in the theaters. Did you see Bicentennial Man in the theaters? No, I didn't. It's funny which ones we remember. So as yeah. we're talking, we've listed pretty much all the movies that came out this weekend. It is a very eclectic weekend, right? You have Robin yeah. Williams in there. You have Johnny Depp. You have Jim Carrey. And you have this Any Given Sunday film that is a very strange film for being the top film for the box office because it's very adult. It's not glamorous and then it is. It's got this weird um, balancing act where it both appeals to the mainstream and it doesn't. I wanted to ask you, sorry to cut you off, but because we did see this one in theaters too together. Did we see this on opening weekend? Was it that type of movie? I think it was much later. I'm positive it was with my parents for this one, which is weird because they were horrified that they took us to this to go along <laughs> with the... Um, the theme of Casey's mom and your mom laughing at the rhino part. I remember still walking out of the theater and my mom just being horrified that they took us, mainly because of the nudity, just like a funny, awkward,
awkward comment about like, don't be intimidated <laughs> or something by like <laughs> the nudity. It's one of those ones like he got game where I saw with my dad and it was completely awkward. But yeah, so all these films, we were we were frequent moviegoers. Maybe like in this year, like you said, it was a year I remember spending a lot of time going with your parents, our friends' parents, our buddy Robert, um, his parents used to take us to movies a lot too. His dad was a big cinephile. Mm -hmm. So I remember seeing, you know, Matrix and stuff like that. With Robert's dad. I, I, the one I remember too, I think might have been this year, is House on Haunted Hill. It was another one of those horror movies I remember seeing in theaters, kind of falling on this list that did surprisingly well when it first came out. And Fight Club came out in 1999. That was more summertime i believe but it still came out in 1999 we talked about that last week and we talked about our experience going to it as well so that's the box office that sets the scene back in late december 1999 right at the turn of the century so we're all waiting for the internet to implode and now let's get into the film itself we're going to skip the cast and just talk about them as we go they're just so familiar for all of us that to talk about their careers would just feel a little gratuitous. So let's just jump right into the film and perhaps start with some of the behind the scenes stories, because this movie in particular has one of those notorious on the film sets. It is just one of those crazy, crazy movies. And probably because it was Oliver Stone film and he's a little nuts, but there's just so much that I think you have to talk about in the behind the scenes world of this film to really understand its intensity and what it's trying to do and why it is so groundbreaking and at the vanguard of its time. Yeah, so uh, one of the interesting stories that apparently happened behind the scenes was that the fight scene between LL Cool J and Jamie Foxx was like, is organic. Now he's organic in quotes. Like apparently it was a real brawl. And I guess uh, uh, Stone was mad that the camera guy had jumped in to break it up. That's kind of a cool fact because that, that was a really cool fight scene. And knowing that fact, it kind of adds to it. Tension, I, I loved the way it built up when I was watching it the second time. And I always liked it as that kind of like action pivot point in the movie. Yeah, it's interesting that they have tension on camera and off camera on this set. That epitomizes Stone's approach to cinema, whether you like it or not, is he wants you to be immersed in these characters and in the moods and the tones and wants it to be as gritty and visceral as possible. So he probably was reveling in their, their brawl and just excited about it in this strange sense that he realized that it was going to add to the texture of the film itself. There are stories about Platoon where he took his cast to the Philippine jungle and just made them survive for weeks. This is a director that wants his actors to inhabit the characters. Obviously, he's going to be approving of a fight instead of trying to break it up. It's just an interesting representation of just how immersive and gritty he wants his actors to get into character. I know on the set of Platoon, a lot of actors almost quit. And on this set, he was notoriously intense and immersive for both glamorous ways and not so glamorous ways. So the models and party girls that they cast, right, they kept them around to keep a party atmosphere. They wanted the actors to to feel, you know, that celebrity status and just that kind of ego boost. He calls this his war film, actually. He showed Saving Private Ryan to everybody before they started filming. And he really wanted to treat it like a war film, as strange as that is. I don't really see it as a war film as much as a, a film about a microculture. You think NFL is a macroculture, but I think of it as like a microculture because it's quite elite and, yeah. and small once you're in it. Yeah, so I agree with you with the idea of um, him trying to build a culture, which I think most of his next analysis I'm going to say is basically about dialogue. And I feel like that's where the 
war motif or his idea this is a war film shine through for me of this viewing so at first I, I didn't think that when I first saw this movie at all I was kind of like yeah I thought it was about buying into a football culture a sports culture my first cursory reading but I think as we read the dialogue and as the locker room talks progress I think it builds into that final like approaching a battle life and death it becomes a major theme and I think when you put it in that context it works more as a war metaphor yeah I think you're absolutely right it gets more and more about like life and death as it goes on but you also see from the get-go how brutal the sport is right with the guy losing his eyeball throwing up and just you know people with ivs and incontinence and running to the bathroom um it's just so biological it's so in the body and in the flesh and particularly like the conversations about leadership too are very much in terms about sacrifice lean by example lean by fear not self-pity as he says in it those are all very militaristic values i'm not saying that in a negative like those are um when i hear al pacino's speeches i hear my dad talking i mean a lot of this as a veteran exactly yeah it's about discipline it's about also how you die individually or you survive as a team i mean that's a very critical war-esque philosophy right you have to be one with your platoon or your troops that's the ethos of a team when they're in war is that you have to be like one unit you can't be your own individual or ego centric discrete entity otherwise everyone will suffer and that was in the inch by inch speech he gives is that yeah. like we'll die individually or survive as a team basically i have a quote here it says the inches we need are everywhere around us is kind of where he goes and that's his big punchline is it the idea that inches is more than the inches on the field and also before that championship game where he gives that we're in hell gentlemen and that's both the state of the team it speaks to uh, the state of his career and as you point out the state of this war metaphor war is hell so i think he does just thread that war uh, motif pretty well in this film yeah he does there is so much more that went on set to uh, just really create an atmosphere. Uh, Stone likes chaos. He likes to be under pressure. He even at one point sniffs the air and decided what he was going to shoot at that moment. And it was a reference to Apocalypse Now. But that's basically a an example of just how off the cuff, impromptu his style is. Uh, he likes to be intuitive, instinctive and raw and in the moment, which is also very much sort of a mentality that I would say mimics wartime where things are happening and you have to adapt. Everything's not manufactured and preset anymore. You have to like be in the moment. And Stone was a veteran himself, right? And that's probably his biggest trauma. And it shows up again and again throughout his career. And here, just a unique way in which he sublimates that twisted psychology. He was tortured by the Vietnam War. There are stories with Scorsese teaching him in college and film school that Scorsese talks about. And he was this like really weird, reclusive, kind of almost taxi driver-esque figure. And there's some speculation that he was one of the inspirations for Robert De Niro's character in Taxi Driver. So he was a dark soul at a time in his life. And you see, even with football, he takes on the NFL. It's still a very dark film. Definitely a dark film. And then we'll definitely talk about the ending and like how to interpret this ending. With the final lines of Jamie Foxx saying, I'm scared after he's trying to tell him he's got his arm checked out, but there's no one there for him to see it. But that's not actually the last line of the film. It's the last line before the credits. Then we get another bit of exposition, um, which makes the coach's story end on a happy note. But what we know about Jamie Foxx might make that happy ending very complicated for him when he gets to this new team. Yeah, and I thought it was a little weird that Cameron Diaz is, in many ways, very strong figure, right? She's militaristic yeah. in her sense. It's got a f strong, I would say, 
feminist storyline. She's just as cutthroat as the other executives. And I'm not trying to disparage her, actually. I think that they're trying to show that, like, She's just a strong figure who knows how to play business with the big boys, quote unquote, at the time. More importantly, they show, like you said, she's dynamic. Uh, It's not just that she's a strong female. She shows that she exists in in this weird periphery where she's not tomboy. She's not businesswoman like the other boys in the, like I love the scenes in the, um, in the box, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's just so over the top. They're listening to classical music while the football game is going on. And they all react to the TV. Right. So it's mm-hmm. after the live game. All right. So I, I just love that. Like the idea that the TV tells us what happened, then, they're, then their eyes are drawn to the field. But she's always, it looks like we're getting the, um, what's going on internally in her head. It's really just her being like an outsider. Every, you know, her father raised her to eventually take this mantle, which she wants to do. But also she has this weird relationship with her mother who has this other weird relationship. And then she has that relationship with Tony. That's a strange, you know, you really get the, the sense of pressure on her from all fronts. So you really get when that line that Charlton Heston's character says, really do believe that woman would meet her own of course it's supposed to be an insult to her you understand though why she has that kind of exterior uh, posture yeah and do you see that she's reacting to her mother who seems a little superficial um even though she's got intelligence too from that pretty interesting dialogue she has with al pacino before the last game where she's mm-hmm. holding the dog and talking about how she hated him at first and you realize she has this tragic life and hates football and is privileged and spoiled and rich as she is. She's basically been stuck in this like world that's a vacuum and sucks everyone around it in. And she could care less. She's this figure of vapid nihilism or something like that. I don't know if that's too strong, but she's definitely vapid to a degree because she's passive in allowing herself to stay or linger in this world that she she hates. And she just seems like aimless and just like a rich, directionless individual. And yet Cameron Diaz is a complete opposite to me, right? She's stepping into her father's shoes. And I think this is Cameron Diaz's strongest role of her career, to be honest. I mm-hmm. think it's very dynamic. She's both cunning and astute she negotiates with the medical personnel. You know, you can see her acumen in the business sense of knowing what she needs in terms of who's going to be on the field and how to try to circumvent the logistics of the medical protocols to get them on the field. And you see her talking to the mayor of the city. She's just working on multiple tiers. And I would say that she has a little bit of duplicity or, you know, she's two-faced in ways, but she's so smart and savvy about it that you're, you're impressed by her. I like that you said, at the, at the end of the day, she's actually a good manager. As a general manager of a team, or, or she's the owner, right, technically? Yeah. The way she sees towards the future and what she wants to do with Willie Beeman, and obviously it doesn't work out that way, it does speak to like kind of what you would actually want from a franchise in the modern NFL. Like it's a product. If you want that championship team, you have to build for it, strike when the iron's hot, unless you're the Patriots, and then do away with it. We, have, like, we just use like a recent example. Like we have the, the Rams tried to build a great team, strike when the iron's hot, they miss when the iron's hot, and now that core is kind of going to get dispersed into the NFL. I feel like this, this um, movie definitely was pressing up. That's a great point. That's a really cool parallel you're making to, I'd say the Rams are interesting mirror of this team. Uh, but then they also have a little bit of the Miami Dolphins in them too. Like the shots of the crowd, it's always empty. And it's in Miami, of course. And they're the Sharks. And they seem, uh, Miami Dolphins in this era, right? They seem passe. They seem like they've passed their prime. Yeah. And they're a middling team at best. And then they have this young kid who comes up and gives them a spark and some sort of identity and perhaps 
a product that's a little bit more flashy. Yeah. He's on the late night talk shows with the douchebag white guy who tries to be all cool and pound his hand and all that. But, you know, he's getting exposure. He's bringing exposure to the team. And she knows that. And she's the one who wants Willie Beeman to play it in the last game when Al Pacino is trying to do everything he can to get Jack, right? Dennis Quaid character back in the lineup. And that's why I don't like the ending, but I like it because you just, with Oliver Stone, nothing's neat in a way that I think is real. This film is messy and scattered and that's the way like reality is. So like, I don't like it because it doesn't fit this narrative unity that I wanted, but I respect it. I actually wanted Cameron Diaz to come out on top because I felt like she was the one who had more foresight and shrewdness throughout the film, not Al Pacino. Al Pacino, you care for, you have pity for. He's almost like this aging uh, dinosaur. But I guess that's like his redemptive moment is that he kind of wakes up. But it's, it, it feels like, oh, she got robbed, right? Stabbed in the back at that last press conference. Yeah, and it does. I, I'm sorry. I completely yeah. agree with you. Like, I, I felt the same way. I thought Cameron Diaz should come out on top. But I still just kind of emphasize that line at the end, though, with Jamie Foxx just basically saying I could be done here very soon on the physical level. And then, as you point out, that's supposed to be like, it's so out of character for Al Pacino to just hop on the young star suddenly and be on board. And he took a risk. And that risk is, is tainted because he took a risk with an injury-prone quarterback. So I still feel it's like she might come out on top. That's a good point. And you also respect the fact that it does show a character arc for, you know, Al Pacino's character in which he's taking a risk, right? He's still a tragic character, too, in that reading as well. Like, there's you can't all, escape it. Yeah, there's all sorts of ironies in that. And he's going with a new team. He's having a real, like, rebirth. Perhaps he'll become young again. Perhaps he'll have a reincarnation of his career. Uh, and it plays really nicely as a antithetical finale to that really central meeting that they have at Al Pacino's house where Ben-Hur is playing. So we get this allusion to athletes as slaves because mm -hmm. what that is showing is the old chariot races where people would die, right, for the entertainment of, of Rome. And you have those spliced in and you have this discussion where it's Jamie Foxx who is the new fresh blood for the NFL, but he's also just in many ways a pawn in the machine of its capital enterprise and its institution, which is hard to have any real sway in. And Al Pacino kind of represents the traditionalist, right? The old school conservative coach who wants him to listen to the rules, cannot fathom a quarterback not taking the plays as he should. And what I love is it's not neat. You don't really know who to side with in any way. There is no side to take philosophically, I think, at the end of that, because in a way, Billy Beeman is arrogant and aloof and overstepping his bounds. And in a way, Al Pacino is stifling and uh, suffocating him yeah. as a player. So I love that. I love yeah. that about this film. Because like you point out exactly, because it does such a good job of really highlighting, and you said in the, in the dinner scene in particular, that just the theme of the generational divide, that classic generation coming before, not meshing with the younger. As I love the line where he says, you're very, very young and very, very stupid. Again, I hear my dad saying that to me yeah. in the back of my head. It's just such a simplistic line and it really does come back down to like that context. But at the same time, I love the pushback because we see how El Pacino's character just dug this this lifestyle. You can't kind of agree with Billy Beeman in the sense that like, yes, tradition is worth, you know, respecting. It's worth knowing. You know, there's also a point when new traditions need to be added and new traditions need to be explored and new voices need to be heard. As he, as he explains with his experience as a black football player with 
which Al Pacino absolutely just shoots down. He won't even hear it, right? <laughs> so it's a very interesting conversation. I always, I always like that layered uh, aspect of the racial tension between the two of them, right? Al Pacino's character does basically treat him like a stereotypical black guy. Right? He he, try, he tells him the story, you know, when he's when he's struggling with the first game. Just go uh, pretend you're gonna roll on, run on down to the Buick, and your mom's calling dinner. You're playing in the hood, like, kind of summarizing it, right? And I love the way Jamie Foxx's character plays in these situations where he's he doesn't quite roll his eyes but you can see him holding his breath and not you know kind of just like you fucking kidding me right and like, i love the way he does that throughout the movies until he finally midway gets to start speaking up in that dinner scene and he really pushes back when he starts you know embracing that kind of that power switch i love that you brought up the fact that he's rolling his eyes and just biting his lip right and i, I watched that tension in him uh, he's such a great actor and what i loved is the moments he wasn't talking actually a lot yes movie. It's yeah. like he is showing this very difficult emotion where you could see that he's like boiling over with impatience, but then still being uh, tactful enough to listen. And I loved it. I love that his, his face there. What I love is how perfectly emblematic it is of a lot of the things in 2020 mm -hmm. sports where you have behind the scenes, I, we don't even see it, but you have these conflicts between owners and players that are very racially amplified. And you see how in this film, the ultimate story is that both have to come and compromise, right? They have to reconcile mm -hmm. to a degree. Jamie Foxx has to shatter his ego, right? He has an ego problem. He also alienates his own teammates, right? And Al Pacino's got to get off his eye horse and get off its, you know, obstinate ways as an old rigid man and get a little bit more groovy and lenient and fresh again. And so you definitely see that they're on these radical ends and they have to meet in the middle. And I think that that's what this film is really about. That's the central narrative to me is that it's this colleague collaboration slash tension between these two figures more than anyone else in the film. And it's a sprawling film with a lot of narratives and conflicts because it's really just trying to show Malou. But to me, that they're the heart of it. And Pacino represents orthodox, old school. This is how it works. And he's got to break down that stubbornness. And Fox represents this conceited, radical, I'm going to revolutionize everything. I'm going to do things my way. And he's got to realize that there are certain norms that you can't just completely ignore and disrespect. Otherwise, you are going to end up not being successful, right? At the party, they, they chainsaw his car in half. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. I you went to that one first because like, I love the way Oliver Stone ties, again, using that, the team building, as just as you summarized very succinctly, the idea of how to win, how all those parts have to really be united to, as he says, going towards the same direction down the field, right? He keeps using that metaphor and he keeps going back to, like, when he tells Jamie Foxx's story about an old quarterback he ran into, how he didn't really miss being a quarterback. It was that he missed the other guys around him, right? And I really love that idea of the brotherhood, the built team building. And I love the way Albert Stone makes it funny. Like, the tension, talking shit about the defense, I'm gonna fuck a car up then, right? That idea there's two sides to the team. And then I love the next scene, you know, when they break down, they won't defend him. My favorite scene in this movie is that scene, uh, the game in the rain. It's a mm. classic, just, it's so over the top and just reiterating the idea that your platoon won't, they don't got your back anymore. And the way he responds and he fights them with it too, right? And he's so defiant in that moment. And speaking to what you said, the idea that he's such an upstart and he hasn't been humbled yet, despite, as uh, Al Pacino had said before, is everyone keeps telling me, you know, there is more to this than you. I really love the way it builds into it with that game where they just won't play the front line for him. Absolutely. And as we were talking about this and that scene where he's in the rain and everyone turns on him, I have to bring this up uh, as one of the behind the scenes thing. 
because it's quite ironic is Puff Daddy, right, was the first choice for Willie Beeman. And he was first cast in the role even. And he showed up on set basically doing the things that Willie Beeman does. He had took his own entourage with him and he was aloof and cocky and alienated everyone on set. And everyone realized that he actually couldn't even throw a football properly, <laughs> claim he threw like a girl. And Pop Daddy claims he left to do a, a tour, but that's definitely not true. These uh, musicians usually uh, would die for a role, like a lead role in a film. I do not buy that suddenly he had a tour. And everyone else's stories, he got kicked off set and recast. The only thing I don't understand is I feel like Oliver Stone is actually crazy enough that even if his actor was upsetting um, him on a personal level, he would still understand the parallels between like the way Puff Daddy was acting in his character and and like it and point. be beyond his own ego. But it almost sounds like if it was his decision or whoever's decision, that was kind of like the Al Pacino figure winning by kicking Puff Daddy off instead of reconciling. So I think Jamie Foxx did a great job, but it's kind of a bummer in my mind. I wish they somehow had Puff Daddy come down to earth and play the role out. And you have this great story that parallels the movie. I'm putting myself as, as a kid in 1999. And if you had told me that Puff Daddy and LL Cool J were in a movie together, that would have just added like another million dollars to your, to your box office, I think. Yeah, I mean, 1999, these were, uh, you know, rappers on the top of the pop world too. They were playing the 1999 MTV Video Music Awards yesterday. <laughs> and it was trending and it's like little kim and puff daddy and Bi like not biggie but like uh biggie's mom was there right it, we're the height of lo cool j jamie fox puff daddy stardom and celebrity so they are casting like the biggest uh, names at this time so this is a huge film i just wanted to to also tap in on that but what i also love is the details in all these conversations and scenes that really get into the nitty-gritty of sports i love that jamie fox defends himself and rightfully so and al pacino calls him out in that discussion about why he got in trouble in college and you get this really realistic authentic backstory about him accepting a 300 dollars suit and basically getting thrown down in the draft and thrown out to the sharks for this very trivial thing and that happens all the time we have these really petty old school rules that just ruin people's lives and they're completely unfair. They're being exploited for their labor and their athleticism and their talent and they can't even accept the $300 suit. And that's such a great little moment in which it really encapsulates a side of sports you don't really see in most sports films. Definitely. Literally, as watching that, I remember that was the first time I'd ever even thought about that concept of being in college and those two different worlds between pro sports and college sports. Yeah, and it became such a big deal later on the next decade or so, especially with uh, like being in LA. Lawsuits all the and lawsuits over likeness and all this. Yeah, it's a huge, I mean, it's, I mean obviously college uh, athletes have come a long way since then, but there's still so much work to do, like you said, with the level of exploitation they face. Yeah, California in this past year uh, allowed them to, you know, now get paid for their own likeness. But you had a decade ago, USC lost their national championship, got stripped away because of, I think it was a car. Someone, oh some player God. received a car. Their whole big run is asterisks and it's tainted and they couldn't go to the BCS games for three years. And I'd like to point that because of this, it's not that it ended his football career, it's that it changed his football trajectory. It moved him from a quarterback to a cornerback. And then it had this devastating impact on, on his physicality, right? Which is the other issue which we get into with all, 
even the players who don't make it, who can't benefit from these things and the physical toll they take with them, right? And they're not compensated for that, right? And that's the other issue he's kind of bringing up in that. It's, it's more than just, I didn't, I went down six drafts. It's that to even have a shot at this, at this, I had to, you know, make adjustments. These adjustments were so detrimental to my future, right? And it's such, I love the way it's threaded into that arm too. I really like the way they, they do that with this injury in this movie. I like the way it's used a lot. I like that you brought up the cornerback comment he made because that reminds me so much of recruiting culture. Um, my dad and his coworkers are obsessed with recruiting culture. They get really deep into all of these nuances that go on behind the scenes. And for a while, I started to learn about that. And you do see like these five-star quarterbacks come out of the best high school with this huge career and they go to a team. I'm just going to bring up USC again as an example. And there's already two great quarterbacks and suddenly they throw the five-star quarterback into a cornerback position which he's not equipped for and he ruins his whole trajectory right these are common narratives there's so many careers that have been sabotaged because one the player maybe had too much hubris and picked the wrong team you know most of these great quarterbacks end up at like texas tech or you know some weird middle range decent school because they get the four years of building their skills right Mm -hmm. Uh, that's why Mahomes is so great in many ways I think because he got four like I don't know if he had four full years but he had a long time in college to really fine-tune his skills whereas these these prima donnas go and they get thrown into cornerback by some by some old dinosaur coach who's just trying to maximize talent in ways that they're not even prepared for because they spent all of high school training to be a quarterback and it is a real narrative it just comes off so authentic to me like so many things in the film. I love that they, they bring in the background scenes, the, all the things in the, the politics that go on in the background. Mm-hmm. And that's why this film to me doesn't feel like a football film as much as it is a football film. It reminds me of, I, you probably don't know these, but like a Robert Altman film, like Nashville, or just one of his films with a lot of characters, a lot of storylines, and it's about a, a scene, an industry. So Nashville is about Nashville's music industry. Okay. And it's, a, it's just this meandering film with all these characters, these threads and motifs that, that, that tie together. But it's, it's more trying to create a sense of time and place. And, and in some ways, that's what this film is to me. So let's get into, I guess, some of the medical and football categories when we talk about this film, right? Because I think that is one of my favorite sources of suspense and tension. Of course, the football is great, but how the medical behind the scenes realities come in. Yeah, it's like a medical like narrative arc that accompanies the main arc. It uh, is really fascinating how you see even complexity and nuance to the, the head doctor who doesn't share, I guess, the results of something that would mean that they had to bench one of the players for a few games. And he's risking this player's life, but he's also perhaps a little correct in that the player didn't even want to know because the player wanted to play. And you're like, wait, who is taking advantage of who here, right? Like, you don't even... Because that was an interesting one, because like you're right, he, he was correct. The player didn't want it. But it also speaks to just the corruptness of him, like the idea of I have so much power. I've done this before. Everyone's in on it. I can just do it, right? And then suddenly they're like, no, you can't do that. We don't want you anymore, right? I love that kind of reality to it, too. We see this all the time, where we find out stuff within organizations of people doing, you know, duplicitous things. Everyone's in on it, and then ship them out, and we wipe it under the board. I just love the way they did that in this movie. You know, it replaced with the noble doctor. And then we get that scene where the noble doctor might end up going down the same path when he gives a shark that shot that he even says he doesn't need. He instinctually goes down with this other doctor did where he's like, well, the player wants it. And that's part of the job too, I guess, right? Is a, That's the question though. Is it the doctor's job to protect the athletes or to do what the athletes want? I, I think it's to protect the athletes. And you see that they have this dilemma, right? They're constantly yeah. pulled two ways into being a responsible doctor 
that takes the high road and worries about their safety and follows medical protocol. And you see them being pulled by the forces of capitalism and competition to embroil themselves in shady business where they do things like give a player a shot. I love the fact that you do say that it parallels like so many companies where the first doctor, when he's kicked off right at practice and he gives that huge speech and he even tries to bring his like, I guess his young girlfriend and she rejects him. It's like, I'm staying here. And he's super smug and glib, but he's also right. He's, he's the sacrificial lamb in that moment. Because you know that they're all complicit. And the new noble doctor, I love that you bring up that later, he has a moment where he's already being tainted. He's already showing that he is going to be corrupted just as the other guy was. So he comes in all high and mighty and morally superior. And by the end of the film, he's already slipping down the same trajectory as the other guy. I love that. I love yeah. how cynical that is. Yeah, because I love James Woods too. He's a, he's, it's not a big role for him. But the role, he just, he nails it. You don't like him. He's a weasel. But then when he's with Cameron Diaz and they're planning this, right? She's in on it. He comes out still looking so much worse than her somehow. And it's, I think it's really because the way he just nails this role of the hotshot doctor, who's not necessarily a hotshot, but thinks he's a hotshot because he's part of that organization. I love, again, the idea that the organization is a type of shield. Even beyond the players, it goes to the staff. It's part of that larger than life lifestyle that is professional sports. Uh, I love the way it goes into the actual culture of the franchise, right? And we're seeing the culture is toxic. It's toxic and it is scheming all the time. I love that Cameron Diaz is trying to do whatever she can with the medical yeah. techniques. Like she wants to slow one player down by keeping them on the injury reserve. They want to legally clear players that shouldn't be cleared that have concussion risks. They only really care about the bottom line to a degree. And what do you think of this commentary that he's making to Ben-Hur once again, as players as these just flesh being thrown out to like slaughter. Gladiator metaphor works, like you said, both ways, as slave and as a combatant. Exactly. And you see that in a way it's indicative of almost capitalism. That's what I love is that I think of them beyond just football players, people in the machine of capitalism, and it's like executives versus the layman. And even football players who are making quite a lot of money and are very powerful, they're still basically underlings because they aren't pulling the strings of their institutions. And that's what we're seeing with sports right now, where they're trying to like unionize basically in many different leagues and protest and boycott, boycott whatever you want to call it. They went on strike. I like that someone called that out semantically. They didn't, they didn't boycott last week. They went on strike. It just, I like they called that out because they showed that it's just a business. We Think of it yeah. as this this other thing. It no, it, yeah. It's a company that went on strike, like the, the employees went on strike. That's what this film is showing you in all these different tiers and all these different pockets of the NFL, all the stratas of an organization, because it's this huge organization. NFL team is multifaceted. And that's what you don't see in other films. You don't see the insight on the owner, the mayor, uh, as a politician, knowing the importance of capitalism and the team, the coach, yeah. the medical people. I was going to speak to that point, though, because uh, I like how you brought up is like generally, even just using the movies we've watched so far, and you know, they're mostly uh, kids' movies, the general managers of these movies are usually the villains, which Cameron Diaz is like a villain in this, right? Because we just went through, she's such a complex villain and she does garner sympathy in areas that she doesn't become that cliche at all. I think that Stone's adeptness at creating complex characters, round characters, is really what shines here. What I think, especially when I looked at a lot of the reviews and interpretations of this film is that, and why I love this film, I was trying to reconcile it because I've read a lot of critical reviews and negativity. And I actually kind of agreed because it's a messy film. It tries so much. It throws everything at the wall stylistically and some hits and some doesn't. Like 
when Jamie Foxx and Chino are having that long conversation and he keeps cutting to this scene of clouds. Glad you brought that up because he does that a lot throughout the movie. I was wanting to ask you about these clouds. Yeah, I think that is, it's messy. I don't think that works. I liked actually the cuts to Ben-Hur. The clouds, I, I, I was like, go for it. I like that he just went for it. And that's one of those moments where like a more cowardly director would actually pull that out because I don't think it actually works personally. I don't. Aesthetically, it just feels off. It doesn't really say anything strong, but he still went for it. And he went for it in every level here. There's just so much uh, things that go on. It's very Michael Bay-esque. It's stylized to like frenetic degrees of disorienting vertiginous like insanity. Like you feel like you're in football when it's going on. Music's changing. He goes from heavy metal to rap to like explosions in the sky, shaky cams. There's rapid fire cuts. It's jarring at times, almost poorly executed, but that makes it so raw. And I think that's the word I could end on is it's raw. And that's, that's the most important thing for me because it feels real. I like that you point out the music the way it jumps. I actually like the wide variety of music in this one because it goes from mostly generic type of tones like jock jams in the beginning. Very traditional yeah. opening scene, football, arena, cheerleaders, fans, some sort of dun, like dun, 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 right? Jock jams, jams, right? Then we switch up to some sort of cool like upbeat hip hop. We got that heavy metal. It's like a locker room <laughs> in a way, that different type of music. Like, like We even see that scene with the heavy metal dudes versus the hip hop dudes and they bring the crocodile in. For me watching this, I really like the just the selection of music for certain scenes. I actually think even though they're, like, they're kind of cringy on purpose, I think. I, I like the way it kind of it unfolds as a whole. Yeah. I love that even in the shower, they they reference being Metallica, like fanatics. Yeah. And then Willie Beeman is um, all suddenly in a hip hop video on TV. This It's a great parody of a, a young upstart throwing his, his hands in hip hop. And it's funny because Jimmy Fox is kind of the same way, right? He's an actor and then a musician. He's this multi-talented figure. And it doesn't completely make fun of Beeman doing hip hop, but a little bit shows just some insight on his personality as suddenly trying to do almost too much, being too eager. Just jumping to that, right? It, it shows his relationship even turning on him with his girlfriend who sees that he's suddenly a playboy figure. They have that great scene in the bathroom where he has to try to charm her back, but she now already has a new boyfriend and, you know, she's her own autonomous individual. It's not just going to pander to his newfound celebrity. And like you said, it starts off with pop jams and it goes into hip hop and then there's Metallica and then there's like weird disco. He's just so many tones and so many different moods that constantly keep you on the edge of your seat. To me, this a good job in a weird way of recreating that, that arena vibe but also carrying on with some of the female characters I really like Cap's wife in this I thought she was such an interesting departure from what we generally see from the wife of the football players in these movies we watch or the wife of the athletes right we just seen uh, Little Giants and the wife of Ed O'Neill's characters like she has pushback but she's still friendly and nice and I love how abusive his wife is to him in this one in the worst way possible because you never see that the way she just owns him like she's like why didn't you get that line that should be your line and he's like no the line's all about teamwork she's like yeah well he got the good line you're not going to get the check kind of thing and I love the way she just dictates his career in the worst way possible when he's you know, trying to stand up to her and I, I, was, I love the way that that role's inverse it's really brief but it's just an insight and the way it depicts that chink in the armor because I've always viewed Cap as like this kind of like Brett Farr figure when I've watched this movie as a kid yeah so I always whenever I see that I'm like man I wonder if Brett Farr's wife just smacks his ass around like that <laughs> so it's the worst thing to laugh at but there's a little humor in this weird like just inverse I always I always think about that scene uh, he definitely is Brett Favre and it's funny because Brett Favre is this huge figure when we were young. Yeah. He's just so gritty as a player. He was in something about Mary, dog. 
Yeah, he was. And um, you love that there's different power dynamics in every in every scenario. Cameron Diaz is powerful in some moments and she's completely almost helpless or like you could see that she's in over her head in other scenarios. Let's bring up uh, Al Pacino, right? He's yeah. the head coach, but often he's in over his head uh, even with his young prostitute that he's um, hiring, she doesn't really like him, but she is unwilling to go beyond a financial relationship. When he brings it up, she resists it. I love that. He, he doesn't yeah. have this way. He is an old man. And so she'll be there if he's giving her money, but not anything beyond that. I love how realistically fractured these people are in the sense that in one social environment, they have a certain level of sway and another they don't. Just carrying on with the El Pacino's character, we don't talk about him very much. I like the scenes set in his home. But the scene when he drunk calls his wife, he crashes around the house, he's reminiscing, and then he turns out, I guess he didn't call the right number, she didn't answer, right? says, your phone, this is, like, it's not even a message, is what, is what I get from that scene. And I just love that futility too, right? He's having this moment where he's basically confessing for what he's done wrong, and he just wants to get the family back together, and then he throws the phone down so he doesn't even bother to pick it up again. And I love yeah. the way they keep reinforcing that. It's not just that he's old and the game's passing him by, it's that he's actively letting the game pass him by, just like he's let his relationships pass him by. He, does, he's, he doesn't do enough. That's part of his flaw. Yeah, I love how he depicts that character too as almost resigned. He's half resigned in the film. Mm-hmm. I wish he almost drank more than he does. He seems like an alcoholic who's past his prime and going through the motions, sleepwalking. Even in his inch by inch speech, right? Which is such a great speech. He's yeah. weird. He doesn't really make eye contact. He's almost trying to pump himself up yes. with the speech. And, you know, he's intelligent enough that he is able to talk himself through this speech almost line by line. I get the sense that it's organically coming up as he's trying to give himself some sort of a regenerative energy to have passion to even want to win. Yeah, I like I love that. the way you put that. Because I feel like, particularly this one, especially because we're doing, as we go through all these movies, we're obviously paying attention to these these locker room speeches. And as you, as you point out, the first speech is a good speech in the sense of how dejected he is from it and how real it is, right? He comes in there like, what do we got to do? Well, I don't know. You guys got to play defense. You got to do something, right? And so like, it's so to the point and just sounds like something a coach would tell you when you know you're not doing what you're supposed to do right i love how it's in game one it sets up and then as you point out i love that last speech because i agree like it seems organic and the way it builds up to the crescendo and obviously everyone's going to get on board and i love that he doesn't sound like he's on board with his own speech at all up until we start getting the crescendo of jamie fox moving forward i just love the camera work on that on that last speech scene too with everyone's eyes the intensity we get this one close-up on one football player whose eyes just look like wide as hell it looks like a fucking wrestler and (laughs) always like it always stuck with me, right? I just love the visual cues that really amplify it. Just like, as you point out, the idea that he's not very confident in the speech, but it speaks again to the idea of, you know, building in that, what you got to believe that team building exercise, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's such a dynamic, interesting character. He's, he's so sleepy and he can't even, he says in the speech, he can't stand to look at himself in the mirror anymore. And so he confesses a lot of his self-loathing and self-deprecation you know and he talks about how he doesn't have a wife he doesn't have a life really anymore he's given it all to football and it's kind of like that's all he has he's that character too right that guy who's basically sacrificed everything for his career and he's at the end of his career he's very tragic this speech for me for whatever reason this is what i associate with el pacino more than like scarface and you know devil's advocates and some of these other larger movies that he's more associated with as his bigger roles that line where he says like heal as a team or die as an individual that's all football's about it's essentially like summarizing it that's always stuck with me 
for me, that's the Al Pacino role. When I think of Al Pacino, I don't go to Scarface. I go to any given Sunday. I do too. It's funny for all these people, like Cameron Diaz, I go to any given Sunday too. His problem is that he's just so depressed almost and sad dog resigned. And then Cameron Diaz is this other force and they're often butting heads. Mm -hmm. She's the opposite. She's just filled with vivacity and Mm -hmm. life. But, you know, people are saying misogynistic things. I think someone says, I believe that woman would eat her young. Yeah. Um, I think Heston says that one. People are just turned off by how ambitious and cunning she is and then you get a great great scene where they are themselves fighting and she tells Pacino like you did not get the ownership role because my dad did not want you to get it that's brutal and I love that she's just so fierce and so truthfully blunt with him they have an interesting dynamic because they both have a really strong relationship to the invisible dead father who used to be the owner then they both have relationship to her mom right he has a long-term relationship with her you could tell from their conversation and I'd love of their entrepreneurial dynamic in which they got different egos and they're from different worlds. And in a way they have a similar duality as Pacino and Jamie Foxx have. Pacino and Cameron Diaz have a similar duality on the business side, right? Pacino's in both of these complex scenarios where he has a very, very accentuated foil, right? Uh, A foe. I like a foil better because they're not like truly enemies, but there's tension. And both of those arcs are, are just so convoluted in the best way possible. What about some of the peripheral things, the funny parties where they're at a dare fundraiser, yet they're all doing cocaine? I love that. I love the hypocrisy, right? I love they're all there with like their side chicks and not their wives. And they're like, these boys are great role models. And one of the other funny comments is the NFL wanted to ban this film. And it wasn't because of anything besides the fact that it was terrible PR for the NFL and obviously so. And it's even bad PR for ESPN. I was watching the interview uh, just last night again, just watching certain clips, right? In the interview between Willie Willie Beeman and the TV actor. The actor you're talking about, uh, John C. McGinley, but I always remember as Dr. Cox from Scrubs. Nice. The actor is a great actor. He's a very funny actor. He's usually comedic, a little hammy, right? He's a little bit always exaggerated in his his roles and he reminded me of like max kellerman or jim rome maybe a little more muted than them right but he's definitely hits that where he's just trying so hard to be so in this day and age i would say woke right he wants to be hip and he's failing he's falling flat on his face and personally i have the same feeling when i listen to jim rome or max kellerman these guys just make me nauseous because they try so hard to say the right thing, that they have no authenticity. There's as superficial as you get. Everything like one of those guys says, they're just, they're charlatans to me. They're sophists of the Mm -hmm. worst sense. Everything they say is just sleazy and slimy. I admire once their verbal dexterity, I guess their communicative like agility and being able to be on these shows and be firebrands and and spit out their opinions because that's it's a talent. But at the same time, like their personalities underlying that, it just it grosses me out. I love this character because they are just under undermining this prototype in our society so well in this film. So let's talk a little bit about some of the football. Um, What do you think about the way they shoot football in this film? Because it is very unique me yeah. the best football movie in terms of camera work well off the top of my head i don't really think of anything super comparable to it i think a lot of movies kind of take from this and use it as a blueprint moving forward like I, we already discussed the rain scene 
but I mean the hits that one for the hit behind the back the helmet coming off then using the double take on it just to emphasize it just like I think that's where the war theme comes into play too like the tunnel vision like, as you mentioned earlier with the shaky camera where we see the way beam in the beginning has the tunnel vision but he doesn't see the target and then we get it with cap where he sees the target but doesn't hit the target right I love the functionality of, of how what seems like you, as you mentioned it's very chaotic but as I watch it this time I feel like there is a purpose for even these these weird cloud shots they come back in these moments of, of chaos and <laughs> it has that kind of like fog of war moment where you know we read like war literature that these talk of clarity and before moments of death and stuff like that and I'm wondering maybe that's the intention of some of these these jump scenes yeah these spliced surrealistic or abstract shots right that are just interpolated yeah. between moments it begs interpretation in the middle of like as you, as you say in the middle of the game I found myself stopping a lot and just asking like why here what is right? he trying to say there's like, some patterns i see but you know um maybe maybe one pattern i saw was that we get this scene after big hits of a lone shadowy figure in an empty stadium this seems to come after concussions generally don't know what you're saying signifying but that just seems to be the pattern i noticed in it. and i made a reference between uh, michael bay and stone as someone's comment that i had found and kind of plucked but mm-hmm. i love the fact that i did mention that as a way to now make distinctions. It's not Michael Bay to me. It's hyperkinetic, it's ultraviolet, it's nauseating. It's just these quick edits, right? But it has purpose. It's not Michael Bay that is just pure artifice. We like Michael Bay just for the maximalism of his films, right? They're just like mm. over the top. And I've read great pieces about why Michael Bay's a tremendous director and I've actually appreciated them. And then I turn on his film and I hate it. So <laughs> it, it is what it is. But to me, that's not the case. Um, the games have a quality that so much more in the moment because he's cutting between the coach and then the player and then there's close-ups of like fingers in the soil and it's just visceral it's gritty it's I keep saying these same words but the speed of the cuts and the camera work really sets the tempo for being on the field I can't imagine actually I've never played football what it'd be like to be on the helmet you know in the pads on the field getting hit it just feels like you'd be thrown into a blender and that's how I feel like I feel watching uh, this film it's like I'm thrown into a blender it pays dividends too like as you say it becomes clear towards that last game you get trained to kind of watch it that way but the last game is kind of shot very traditionally in a weird way because you get mm-hmm. emphasized shots on big big plays it's not quite as abstract as these other ones with the uh little clips of like sky and stadium and stuff right it's really more about the team getting down the field and i do appreciate that in the, in the final game there's one thing i noticed that i think it was good the way he shot it was like the scene where they're trying to they're supposed to be trying to get out of bounds and the tension leading up to that scene i remember watching it and i was this is a pretty tense scene but like i feel like there's more to it and I, I i'm like okay they're getting out of bounds but i remember they shot so well that i felt like it was such a big moment that they were going to go for the end zone I'm like why would they go for the end zone right there they should go out of bounds and I kind of like that. It made me think like, like as a football fan for a second there. And it added a layer of tension. I was like, what are they doing? Oh, there's more time. Oh my God, they're, thank God there's more time. It has, like you say, loyalty still to the narrative of the game. It's somehow able to make it very fragmented and give you this kaleidoscopic insight of all these things that are going on. And yet you still feel like it has some traditional football arcs. They win the game at the end in a very dramatic fashion. You are rooting for them. They have the the rain game, like you said, that is falling apart. And they have very strong emotional arcs that go along with it. You see in the first game, absolute trepidation to be on the field, throwing up. You know, he's the rookie and his first time. It's got a great narrative, got a great storyline. You see the team turn against him in the raining game. 
got a great story. And then you see the big team coming together in the final game, which isn't really a big game either, right? It's to get into the wild card of the playoffs. That's it. And they don't win. They lose their first game in the playoffs. Wasn't a hugely successful season by any means. I really appreciate that. Like you point out, it's something you have to think about. It builds to it's not the idea that you're fighting for the championship. It is the idea that, you know, winning is a little battle. Right? Going back to that idea of teamwork and what you're working towards the field downfield together. Nice. So this is a interesting Ron Tomatoes statistical anomaly for me. It got 52% positive reviews from critics out of 123 votes and 73% positive out of the audience. I think because it's a stone film who, you know, such an auteur would appeal more to critics. And I think people, even though it does have these traditional elements, would be put off by some of the jarring moments of the clouds cut in and just how gritty it is, right? They would want more traditional storytelling. Yet it turns out that the audience still loves this film more than the critics even loved it. And so I found a review by Jeff Andrew of Time Out. It's a really long review, so I apologize for how long it is, but it's just so tremendous. It conglomerates a lot of things we're saying with different language and from a different angle. He says this, quote, there's an obvious point of comparison here with Imperial Rome's taste of recreational carnage and brutality, which is why Stone includes a lengthy clip from Ben-Hur in this gargantuan gung-ho American football fest. All also included in this film. And he puts a colon here because it's going to be a really long list. Color filters, transitions, split screens, freeze frames, pictures in pictures, assorted film and video stocks, helicopter shots, cornball weather imagery, histrionic sound effects, hip-hop, heavy metal, drugs, sex, gyrating cheerleaders, colliding jocks, on-field set pieces, off-field set twos, and encyclopedic deployment of genre stereotypes. Stars, stars. Now that really accumulates in even his writing the sense of this film, right? It just mm-hmm. throws it at you and throws it at you. And you, by the end, you feel almost bludgeoned and fatigued. But I appreciate the oversaturated quality of this film. And the review is not even over. And this is just a fantastic review. And so he continues, you may, of course, take this as a recommendation. So I do. And even having seen it, I still think that's a positive thing. But this is what's interesting is a lot of critics ended up not liking it. It turned them off. And he says, supercilious Europeans who insist that Americans possess no sense of irony have spent much time in the company of Oliver Stone films. Agree? The director has other qualities. Few filmmakers could hope to marshal this much information in two and a half hours. Even fewer directors would even try. And his flair for representational overload in itself must make Stone one of the most outstanding chroniclers of American cultural decadence. Whether simply parroting the world around him makes the resulting work any good or enjoyable is another matter. This one is a meathead burlesque. I love that that last diss, a meathead burlesque, because it is, but I completely disagree. I think that uh-huh. this person is just uber conservative and maybe it was too much like the hip-hop and MTV videos. I don't even call it just a hip-hop, right? That's another thing we didn't even bring up is that this film in some ways is very groundbreaking in the film world, in the cinematic world, even though a lot of 90s films are really pushing the buttons with Tarantino and so forth, but it's still ahead of its time, in my opinion. And if there's anything that it's taking from a little bit, it's like hip hop culture with those flashy cuts, those surrealistic scenes. And I just think it's brilliant now. And it stands 21 years later as more fresh than any sports film that's come out since. I yeah. really believe that. I like are that a lot you of... point that out with hip hop culture because I feel like the split screens in this were very functional and I'll get in a good way. 
way. Nice. I love the way things move in this when we're getting split screen. I, 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 that was one of my favorite techniques I was using this because I felt it was just so effective in, in these montage moments where you're, where you're bringing a lot of threads together. They're still pushing your narrative, right? Like I mentioned the one with Cap's wife chastising him over the commercial, right? That's tied to Willie Beeman's story with threads off of the Caps and then threads us into their argument. Yeah, I, I mean, it is like you said, uh, taking all these different temporalities and visuals that show you how just messy and scattered existence is, right? It's, it's, it's just breaking form. I love it. it. It's like modern literature. I'm getting too far away, but it's like James Joyce novel to me. It's just all over the place. And yes, it's alienating in some ways because when you, when you break form a lot or deconstruct tropes or dissect just genre, while you're making something, it's often going to come off as clumsy and just difficult to parse. But he does it in ways that are innovative and aggressive. And even though it's rough around the edges, it's still just a pioneering sports film that really just captivates me. And that's why I like it. I, I have moments where I am myself taken out a little bit, or I think some things are just a little maladroit, reaching too far. But I still respect it so much that I, I like it. Uh, so do you have any reviews uh, that you would uh, want to throw in here? Yeah. Uh, so this is from Richard Schickle of Time Magazine. And he says, quote, almost three hours of this jitter deteriorates from reverse filmmaking to annoying mannerism. And any given Sunday ends up less than the sum of its many, often interesting parts. But again, it's kind of summarizing what you just read in a much, long, <laughs> much longer quote. Much of its appeal can be annoying to some viewers is my take on this, which I can see. Yeah, it's a much more succinct way of saying the same thing, right? It's, it's filled Bravira and it can be grating or annoying, right? It could turn you off and it can. Mm -hmm. Now that's what anything does. It's really trying to push boundaries in my opinion because you're going to miss. If you're really really being creative and going for it you're going to miss at time True. and that's what i respect it's such a groundbreaking pioneering film because it's not afraid to take risks and in a way at the same time it keeps some of the conventions in there that you're still entertained and that's why i was able to make money and that's why he is embodying in my mind jamie fox and al pacino his jamie fox Sensibility is the one taking the risk and is Al Pacino is the one still creating kind of a traditional football film. In the film itself, he is reconciling his radical experimental elements with his more genre conventional tropes. It's those two elements when they combine that really create something masterful. It's like you said, it seems like the audience who was looking for the traditional underdog football story and didn't get that would be uh, turned off by this. I just wanted more, actually, when I watched it. I wanted to see a team that started off actually in a decent season completely deteriorate. I started thinking of all these great ideas. I just wanted a more modern update on this too. I think this would be a great film to, to not remake, but to have another film like it, mm -hmm. uh, where we bring in fantasy football, where we bring in Twitter, where we just bring in analysts of today's world. But in some ways, it's so prescient that it feels like it is capturing everything today pretty yeah. on point. So I don't even know if we need it at the same time. And that is a huge compliment. I wonder if this is just going to continue to age and refine like, like a fine wine with yeah. time. At some point, it'll probably hit its peak and then it'll start to spoil because there's got to be some point where culture just shifts too much. But for now, it's definitely aligning with our modern day professional sports cultures. So let's move to some of the user reviews. 
And like usual, we're going to Letterboxd. And I am going to start with a 3.5 out of 5 review. I'm surprised it's this high because once again, it's kind of a negative review. And this one's by Matt Lynch. Uh, it's a very rambling run-on sentence, so bear with me. But there's a lot of interesting things that are said in here. Quote, Stone keeps hammering at the idea that money corporatization poisoned the purity of the sport. But not even Stone seems to believe that bullshit. His narrative is compromised by the demands of an audience-friendly underdog come from behind sports movie. But if you're like me, you showed up for his crackpot associative indictment of masculinity, something he directly compares to a competition that's supposedly no longer meaningful. And as for football, Stone prefigures Django Unchained with Jamie Foxx's attacks on the sport as institutionalized, vulturally valorized Mandingo fighting. Making a satire out of a sprawling subject like this requires a pretty deft touch, one Stone doesn't really possess. Thankfully, he makes polemics instead. I would love to actually speak with uh, Matt Lynch here. I don't have like any strong rebuttals. It sounds like he's just grappling with all these things too and kind of gumming out in a different place. But I really appreciated this review. I feel like he's digging into some of the expectations. If you're a cinephile of a Stone film, you're both mesmerized by how he's treating this this genre, but some senses he didn't think he went far enough, I guess. I think he reconciled it nicely. And I made my argument that he's in some ways mirroring the film as this reconciliation of the conventional coach and the flashy creative quarterback by bringing in both. But for this viewer, it just didn't push it hard enough. And it was just kind of a mess that didn't really uh, have a deft touch as a satire of the NFL. I disagree, but it's a great review. And it has a really interesting comment about Django Unchained and how it parallels how he critiques sport as this mandingo fighting, right? It's this racist, institutionalized exploitation of black athletes. Very cool. So I'll let you go with the last user review. All right. Uh, this one's from Austin Gorski. Uh, he gave it a three out of five. And he says, quote, a big steaming pile of shit, but a crazy ambitious one that I can't help but admire. For all its OTT editing techniques, some sequences are cut together perfectly. But for the most part, the film is too grand for its own good. On the acting front, Fox and Pacino are great here, even if they're just yelling all their lines. I disagree with the last one. I don't think they're just yelling their lines. I thought the delivery is pretty on point in this movie, particularly in Pacino. I love Pacino's cadence, going from dejected to just hating himself, then to rising the team. I, I, I love the range he, he displays here. And as we already discussed, Fox's body language in particular is just really drives his performance in this. Absolutely. I mean, Pacino is like De Niro in which she's always Pacino and De Niro is always De Niro almost. And you always celebrate and appreciate their performances, but in some ways they're a little redundant repetitive but here i think is one of pacino's least pacino films actually so i completely disagree with this where in every other film i see pacino he is almost just yelling his lines he does a damn good job of yelling his lines but he's doing that and in here he's you said dejected i thought immediately despondent same kind of meaning synonyms but he's got a totally different tone and mood He's very mopey, very inward looking and melancholic. And he's not yelling his lines all the time by any means to me. He's almost mumbling half the time. I love the moment where he is at the bar and talking about how commercials were the downfall of the NFL, which ties into the other review, which said that it felt like it had a kind of shoddy theme about how capitalism and the NFL sabotaged by their greed. But I actually thought that they do a good job and they have some really interesting insights where he says commercialism's made the game on their time. I love that. It, the nuance of that insight, the poignancy of it, it's just no longer was the game just a game. You had to stop for a commercial. It blew my mind actually when I, when I heard that. It's so interesting. What do you think about the interplay between capitalism and the NFL in this film? I mean, I, th I think it's fantastic. No, I agree. Uh, like, as you just said, just the 
layers of representation of that dynamic and the way it's unresolved. Yeah, I like I like the way it's the question is posed and it's left open ended, and we can see the way the reason it stands up today, as you as you said earlier, the reason you can use this as a type of allegory for the NFL twenty years later. And I love that you're talking to Jim Brown there, which is one of the great football players, right? Yes, I'm going to talk about Jim Brown really in this, but yeah, Jim Brown actually. I love his wise old figure. He basically plays in this. Mm-hmm. He plays Black Obi Wan in this movie. Like, he's badass. I love. I love him. I love when he's giving that speech. Like, yo, coach, calm down. You're gonna have a heart attack. He's like, fuck you. I don't get heart attacks. I give heart attacks. I love that line. I do too. You know, he's the advocate of the purity of the game, right? He's also another old school guy. But then it's interesting because he's an African American. So you see that the conservative mm-hmm. institution isn't really as clear-cut racially divided all the time. I I think that's really interesting. And um, we didn't bring up a lot of people that are in this, that are very thoughtful castings, right? Jim Brown is one. We mentioned a few times that Charlton Heston is in this, but, you know, he's only in Ben-Hur, which they're alluding to, and they show clips of, but he's also the AFFA football commissioner in this. Then you have Terrell Owens in this, um, in a role that I never even spot, but I know that he's in it because in a lot of the backstory I read about it, that he learned that filming is this weird scenario where you hurry up and wait. I just thought it was a really interesting insight that I, you know, I've never been an actor, but I can imagine you hurry up, you're doing all this crazy stuff and you just wait forever. But there's so many great casting decisions. Aaron Eckhart is great as the offensive coordinator. We didn't even talk about that dynamic. And that's another one of the young tech savvy, highly innovative offensive coordinator who's reddening Al Pacino for his job, right? He talks with Cameron Diaz about wanting to lead the team and she's, you know, at least entertaining it because she knows she wants to keep him around. Oh, no, I just like, you just pointed out, just again, that next layer of just carrying on that theme with the generational divide. I love like you go through to the franchise, the way it finds its way through the different levels of the staff. I just love the way you can always trace that thread into so many levels. The themes in this movie, I think that way it's functional. Even though it's like a hog posh and a lot of the planes is too much, I feel like it's threaded in a way that it makes enough sense. It, it's why it's, for me, it's such a movie I can just rewatch. It's two and a half hours, but I do like watching this movie. I mean, I couldn't believe I rewatched it again. I saw it like a few months ago and I was like, oh, it's a little too uh, blurry in my mind already, right? And mm-hmm. I put it on. It was just, I was once again immersed completely yeah. absorbed because there's so much to pick up on. And going back to this capitalistic thread, there's the coach, right, trying to be the head coach because he wants to get ahead. It's this internecine like business environment where everyone's always kind of clawing for everyone's spot. And it's cutthroat. It's dog eat dog. Mm. The player is going to go and risk his well-being because he wants the bonus. We didn't bring that up this time. Sure. Yeah. Great name. His, his response to the animation of it, as you said, like he's going to risk his body, but the way he says it, you know, for a million dollars, I'll shit out coconuts. And then when he gets hit, to me, I still I still laugh at the line. I love the way he delivers it. He's like, don't drop me. I'm worth a million dollars. And I love <laughs> the sentiment of that line. Yes. That the way it's delivered and the moment, it's such a sports moment too injured player is okay and they say something funny oh it's such a moment of clarity and again it speaks back to as you bring up we're talking about that capitalist thread though the idea that he has to get that bonus because he knows there's nothing else after that as he says i don't know anything other than football and we brought this up already but the you know the team's intern doctor right dr mm-hmm. oliver ollie powers he comes in and he's seeing all the players that are they're, they're overdosing they're on steroids they're taking painkillers like their candy we did bring this up but we didn't quite get at it and it, it's that he nefariously usurped the the throne. He's faking being noble. It's not only that he's tainted. That's what I wanted to bring up. I have a new like reading of it. Is he's not just like tarnished by the power and the sort of quagmires morally you can get in. But in my mind now, he he's already ready to do that. He just wants the position, and it, that's the game. His yeah. corruption. 
So I am here with J.B. Huffman, and he is a fellow regular and contributor on the Filling Film Facebook group. We constantly share critical reviews and so forth on that awesome group, and we have commented on similar threads. And when I reached out asking for people to join this podcast, he was quick to reach out to me and note that he really loves Any Given Sunday. So here we are. It's our first film of this new bracket of films based around the NFL. So I'll let him introduce himself, his podcast, and maybe a little bit of his film background, some of the films he's into, and maybe his favorite sports films. Hey guys, I'm JB. As, as he said, I'm a contributor on Film and Film Facebook group. I've also been on an episode of the Film and Film podcast, which where I talked about Varsity Blues. It's a shameless plug for uh, Aaron and Patch. If you like that movie, go check that out because it was it was a really fun time. And and I played high school football, so that was I had that kind of insight there to what was going on, uh, which they appreciated. But yeah, I actually I host a podcast called SEC Tavern Talk from a Christian group, but we we don't really talk about Christian beliefs or anything. We just talk about SEC sports from football, baseball, basketball. Right now, we're kind of on a little bit of a hiatus because there are no sports, especially college sports. But our guys are kind of chopping at the bit to do another podcast, even though there's nothing going on. They're just wanting to talk about, you know, the talking season, which I'm not really a fan of. But yeah, just go check that out if you like the SEC sports or if you just want a different side of the coin. Like a lot of times people don't like the SEC, but if you want to listen to us, just kind of hear what we have to say. It's beneficial and, and and it's clean and we enjoy doing it. As far as my kind of movies I like, I, of course, I love sports movies. I grew up watching all of them. Grew up watching a lot of comedies, a lot of Jim Carrey, uh, Mike Myers, uh, Adam Sandler, God rest his soul, uh, Robin Williams. That's what I kind of grew up on. As I got older, I started getting into more comic book films and sci-fi stuff, horror movies. I mainly like comic book movies, sci-fi. I, I like to dip into a lot of horror too. I just I go through different spurts. Then, then I always fall back to sports and if, if I'm just wanting to sit and watch a movie it's going to be a comedy that's my natural instinct some of my favorite ones obviously the best comic book movie is The Dark Knight and don't even talk to me about anything else because that is the best and then as far as you know other movies I like Inception that's probably my favorite sci-fi movie my all-time favorite movie period is It's a Wonderful Life I watch that every Christmas and I cry every single time but then as my sports movies go Remember the Titans is, is, is always a big one Varsity Blue is right up there too for love of the game i love that it's, it's showing you a different side as well as far as pitcher on the on the mound being separated from the rest of his teammates and everything that's going through his head the entire time i, I rewatched that recently and i really really enjoyed it rocky and rocky four uh, those are top notch and jerry Maguire, another one where you kind of see the a different side of sports of course any given sunday as we discussed and then there's, you know, the, the older stuff like the Mighty Ducks, the, all three of those. It'd really be hard for me to say which is my favorite, but I am a little bit partial to uh, D2. <laughs> and then there's, you know, the classics like Rudy, which is great. Uh, a League of Their Own, Pride of the Yankees. Uh, a League of Their Own, I actually just watched that for the first time recently. And man, that was so good. Gina Davis's character in that was just so awesome. Like oh, just one of, my, one of my favorites ever. But yeah, that's mainly the stuff that I like to watch. Great. So there's so much to chew on there. First off, getting into your long list of favorite films, I just wanted to tackle specifically Adam Sandler because you brought up Adam Sandler and mm-hmm. he has a lot of sports films. So I just wanted to pinpoint on that one and ask you what would be your favorite Adam Sandler sports film? If you would have asked me a year ago, I would have said Happy Gilmore, but... 
now that I've seen Uncut Gems twice, I have to say that that's my favorite. That movie, it gives you an anxiety attack, but it's so good, man. And Adam Sandler's got some acting chops, man. You have to remember to breathe when you're watching this movie. It's so crazy. And if you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. It's like if you've ever been somebody or known somebody who has addictions, whether it be gambling or you know drugs, alcohol, you know, whatever, it's something that you need to watch because it shows you how deep someone can go, how they'll just spiral into this. It's about gambling addiction, so and it's sports gambling. So yeah, it is a sports movie, technically. I put it on our list, which was a hard one to decide whether to throw on or not, but it fit perfectly, even though it's peripheral from sports because he's only a sports gambler. Uh, whereas yeah. like, the water boy is so steeped in sports yeah. that it, there's no question, right? Yeah, it's definitely a pulsing film, right? It has you on the edge of your seat. All of the Softy Brother films really grip you. Part of the reason is their soundtrack. It's phenomenal. And it's by a really, <laughs> yes. it's by a really awesome band that I will botch if I try to pronounce their name. I even listened to them before they were doing the scores of these films. I think they're called like Annoy Tricks Point something. I, I can never say it. I, it's just like I, I picture the name and can't say it. But anyways, they're awesome. And they did the score also to Good Time. Have you seen Good Time? Uh, I've seen well? Good Time. Okay. And they also did Heaven Only Knows, I believe it's called. And it's about addicts on the streets of New York City. And that's also a very intense visceral film. They kind of remind me in a strange way of, because they're a brother duo, the Coen brothers. But if they were like a aggressively street if they were about like the underbelly of inner city life then they would be the like parallel of the cone brothers in a completely different universe where the cone brothers are always attacking idiosyncrasy and satirizing eccentric characters Uh that are more middle class the softy brothers are very immersive in exploring the psyche and adrenalized rush of being on the throes of poverty just in the dregs of society and so i really appreciate their film and the fact that they depict these niches that we don't normally see. That's inter- that's an interesting comparison. It makes me want to watch more Softy Brothers movies because I love the Coen Brothers. Actually, I just recently realized I was on Letterboxd that uh, I've actually seen more of the Coen Brothers films than any other director. I've actually just finished their entire filmography. My last one was Hudsaker Proxy, which was actually really good. I love their movies, man. And they've got some that are not a fan of really, but they're, they still have their good moments. It's like, you know, Hail Caesar. I'm not a huge fan of that, but it's still entertaining in its own way. I loved Hail Caesar, actually. I had a really? blast. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Hudsucker Proxy yes. for me was a middling affair. It wasn't bad, but maybe Barton Fink is one of my favorites. I like some That's of those lesser known ones in the middle. They're impossible to really choose a best. Inside Lewin Davis is probably the top of my list, though. That's my favorite. I was a struggling musician for many years, and it really captures that plight of living your life as an artist without any economic support in the cold New York winter very much captures the folk scene of like the Bob Dylan era it's in Greenwich Village it's great so we've digressed so much and let's move to a different director (laughs) to try to transition into our topic today and that's Oliver Stone so out of all of Oliver Stone's films I'm sure you've seen quite a few what would you say is your maybe top three if you could throw a top three together for Oliver Stone films I go back and forth between JFK and Any Given Sunday at the top I think JFK is probably better Mm -hmm. 
but I think deep down any given Sunday will always have a special place in my heart. So I've got to say that's my number one. Uh, And then it's a toss up between Wall Street and W. I will say probably Wall Street though, because it's more rewatchable to me. I've only seen eight of his films though. Savages, The Doors, The Other Wall Street, and Natural Born Killers round out my filmography of Oliver Stone. I do enjoy his movies and I want to watch more of them. I just haven't. I would say for me, just to throw this out there, because it's a good question <laughs> I like as well, that Natural Born Killers would be my favorite. It's a little bit over the top, I understand, but I saw it when I was in my formative years, and it really woke me up to the ability to throw style and be a trailblazer in terms of a director, not tour. Yeah. And then I think Born on the Fourth of July, I think it's a very powerful film. Uh, Tom Cruise gives one of his best performance. I really love that film. Would round out my top three with any given Sunday up there. I don't know where I would put it. It's a hard one. Didn't uh, Tarantino write Natural Born Killers? I think that he was involved in some way. And it's hard because I think of Natural Born Killers and Pulp Fiction. They've always been kind of synthesized in my head. I saw them around the same time. And let's now focus on Any Given Sunday. And what do you find groundbreaking or unique about Any Given Sunday, maybe particularly in Stone's pantheon or canon of films? This is such a weird one for Oliver Stone. What about Any Given Sunday stands out to you? To me, it depicts what goes on in the shadows of professional sports. Nothing else has ever done that. That's why it's so groundbreaking. It's very gritty with what goes on. I think that's why it stands out to me is because you see this other side you know we watch sports and it's like it's fun we're cheering we're on the edge of our seat we're happy a lot we're sad a lot of times too but it's just about them playing a game and throwing a ball around but what he shows us is a completely different side of that most of these guys had nothing growing up and all of a sudden they're making millions of dollars what are they going to do with it you know it's crazy to see but it's important to see in my opinion to understand giving an 18 year old that much money or a 20 22 year old that much money is is dangerous (laughs) yeah yeah i like that you said it kind of shows you the shadows of the nfl right of the professional football league stone himself noted that he approached it as a war film and i find that such a fascinating angle to take for a football or sports film what elements would you say make it warlike i think the individual characters are all fighting a war internally willie you know is trying to make it in his new role on the big stage uh, which comes with all sorts of struggles and he's just trying to push through it and and do the best he can and and of course he stumbles a lot and then you know tony is struggling with the change of the game and and this new environment that he's in much like being thrown into the jungle right and the game is changing and he's not and he's struggling with that and whether or not it's time for him to just hang it up and call it a career cap is fighting an injury battle and whether or not it's worth it for him to try to come back even though he's never going to be 100 percent, or is it just good for him to just go out and remembering the good times and his greatness and just i could have played more years but you know i got injured he could do that but it's just it's a pride thing for him and then there's christina who is fighting the battle of being a woman in a prominent role in a man's world is working super hard to not be remembered as just the former great owner's daughter. You know, she wants to make a name for herself, not just who her dad is. And, and also shark. (laughs) He just continues to play through the hurt, through the pain, through concussions, because 
He wants to have a legacy and he wants that million dollar bonus. You look at all these characters and they're all fighting some kind of a war within themselves. And that was so well said and laid out. I really appreciate the way you broke it down character by character. Basically gave a comprehensive overview of all of the different internal battles of these characters. And what I was thinking as you were talking is they have internal battles and external battles at the same time, every single one of these characters. And I think that intersection of war or battleground really makes this film so fascinating. So you have like Willie, who was fighting with hubris and a lack of confidence and this new stage in celebrity, as well as fighting for the quarterback job because he knows that once Cap gets better, he's going to be chomping at the bit to get his position again. Mm -hmm. You have Tony, who's fighting age and ageism, and he's fighting the fact that he might be fading out just in terms of having the vitality and figure to be a winning coach. You have Shark, who's fighting to try to make money on the outside and externally, and he's fighting, he must be fighting the doubts of putting his body on the line. There's just battles of fame, battles of pride, battles of economics. Mm-hmm. I think Christina Cameron Diaz's character mm-hmm. is probably the most complex of all because here she has inherited this team. She's a female. She's dealing with, with misogyny and being looked at as a weak leader. And so she plays it very strong, but then she's kind of ruthless and cutthroat. And so she has to play with morality, <laughs> right? And, yeah. you know, she pushes some lines and blurs some ethical boundaries throughout the film in terms of trying to push the doctor to do some sketchy things. It's just a complex, nuanced film that gets into and under the sheen of the NFL. And you see all of the grit, all of the dirty fingernails. And that's what I want to transition to is the actual football play is so incredibly visceral. What did you think about the depiction of football, of the game? of the moments in which they were on the field and the, some of the stylistic elements that Stone throws at this film. Because he throws everything at the wall in this film, in my opinion. You used the word edgy. And the first thing I thought was when you put a teenage television show star from the 90s in a show where she plays a hooker and she's topless, that shows that it's pretty daggum edgy. So yeah, it's definitely got that. As far as the play goes, man, yeah, it's brutal. Like it's it's tough to watch sometimes. And then the dude just throwing up on the field. But I think it enhances the experience because to me it emphasizes the grit and the struggle and the dirtiness and the lavishness of professional sports uh, and the environment that they're in like nothing else I've ever seen. I love how you said both the dirt and grit and the lavishness, right? Because there's a balance, there's a dichotomy in this film of the visceral violence on the field and all of the biological, physiological bludgeoning that they have to endure. And then they have the pomp and hedonism off the field that they show too. And I love that they Mm -hmm. do show the glamour of this lifestyle as well, from their parties to their mansions. Just It has both elements. It has the whole spectrum of this world. And to me, it's a film more of a, of a world. It builds a world. And one film I always compared it to, actually, is another film that I was floored by and didn't expect to be. And that's Miami Vice. Have you seen Miami Vice? No, I haven't. That's I, Jamie Foxx as well, right? It is. And it's a Michael Mann film. I uh, went into that film thinking it was just going to be a run-of-the-mill kind of cop duo shoot 'em up film. But no, that film has a world that is very elaborate with tone, with mood, 
with character. It's entrenched in Miami and it just, it oozes Miami. And this is another film that oozes that Florida setting. And Mm -hmm. it really just builds the ambiance of everything that it is trying to capture. What do you think about the world building and the setting and the ambiance and tone of this film? Yeah, I think it was perfect. Like what you said about it being in Florida, that helps to display the lavishness that's just kind of the way it is down there and the setting the way they show like the shots of the football field with Willie being in there by himself like that was just a great moment there I feel like it definitely enhances the movie we've talked a lot about how it's kind of dark and gritty and it also shows the shady economics that go on behind the scene the duplicity that goes on behind the scene so if you were to remake this film today what dark aspect of the underbelly of the NFL that's slightly known as you would know being a football fan what aspect today would you depict if you wanted to show a more visceral raw and realistic depiction of the nfl first of all i might show like a a former player who ended up getting cut who just blew all of his money and was poor again because that happens. Yes. And and I would love to like somebody who was prominent, like a, like a running back or something who was the big star and, and just lose everything just to see something like that would have been cool. But also I would have liked to see them explore the after effects of playing hurt, playing with concussions. We saw that shark was doing that and what happens you know, when you do that. And and in 1999, that wasn't really something that sports paid attention to. But you know what? They did it in Varsity Blues in 1999 with Billy Bob. Yeah. But yeah, it cost them the star quarterback. To me, that was, that was groundbreaking to even talk about that because they didn't even put any kind of rules in the NFL for like another 15 years after that. <laughs> So I think exploring the the uh, concussion uh, aspect and playing hurt and, and the after effects and what it can do to your body and your career and your brain, I, I would have explored you know those two things. Yeah, it would be really fascinating to throw in a character that's maybe a broadcaster but struggling with CTE on the moments off the air or something. That was one of the things I thought of, like kind of a Terry Bradshaw-like character, but he somehow steps up for the 10 minutes that he has to talk on the morning show on Sunday. And then the rest of the time, he's just stumbling his words and lashing out at the the people on set. You know, I I thought that that would be a perfect fictional character to to show that world. I also actually think as weird as it it is, I would like to bring in like a little more gambling and even fantasy football because fantasy football has so much politics and kind of weird divisiveness that's surrounding it. I'm fascinated by that. Like, you know, Richard Sherman had a comment once a few years ago, like saying that the advent of fantasy football really dehumanized football players and objectified them into stats. And I think that's changed the game in many ways. And somehow I'd like to bring that element into it. But there's so many things you could bring today. And what this film is fascinating at doing is if you think about 1999, these things were happening, and I'm, I, I have no doubt, but this film is very prescient because these things weren't at the forefront of the conversation around the sport until just a few years ago. And now we are talking about CTE and we're talking about, you know, concussion protocol. We're talking about the longstanding debate of two styles of quarterbacks. And that's one of the interesting things at the center of this film, right? We have the traditional pocket quarterback with cap. I don't know how tall Dennis Quaid is, but he's a big kind of Peyton Manning-esque quarterback. And then you have Willie, who's the young athletic For me, it's Michael Vick because that was when I was really into college football. 
and he was just so athletic. He was one of my, yeah. my favorite, right? Virginia Tech. But he embodies so many quarterbacks we can name, even Mahomes a little bit. And so if you were the coach and you had a healthy cap and a healthy <clears throat> Jamie Foxx or Willie, who yeah. would you start? It depends on the setting because I think in the beginning of the movie when they were both healthy and before Cap went down, I would have made the same call and, and let Cap start because you know he's your safest bet. He knows the team. They know him. He's their captain. And they there's a cohesion there with him. And they gel well together. So I wouldn't want to mess anything up if I was wanting to go to the playoffs uh, and, and win a championship. I would definitely keep him around. Now, that, that may be wrong. It may be better to bring in the young and energetic and athletic quarterback to keep up with today's game. But I still, I would have just made the safe bet. Now, you know, fast forward with Cap coming back after being injured, I wouldn't have put him back in. Sorry. This entire season, Willie's been leading this team. They built a bond and they've been doing really well, better and better every week. I'm sticking with Willie. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, it's a tough one. But this year we have basically Cam Newton up at New England now, and we have Tom Brady down at Tampa Bay. And we're going to see a really interesting narrative there. I think everyone's looking at those two and seeing how they do. You have Tom Brady, who's still pretty strong, but you know he's pushing his years mm-hmm. really far now. And you have Cam Newton, who's one of these athletic quarterbacks who's been excellent when he's healthy, but he's been injured quite a bit. And so I just think it's so interesting that this exact duality, this narrative of these two styles of quarterbacks is still so prominent today. And it's only become more prominent since this film. Uh, this film really tapped into the, the meta-narratives of professional football. And so with that said, this bracket that we're doing, uh, Jordan, my co-host and I, is on the NFL. And where do you think this film fits in, in terms of a film that depicts NFL politics and realities in the greater pantheon of sports films? It's probably my seventh favorite sports film. It could be higher if I, you know, upon rewatches, but right now it's solid there in my top 10. But it's definitely more unique than almost all of them because of, of, of what it does. It shows you this hardcore look at what goes on behind the scenes in professional sports. So I think it's more than just football. It's more than just a sports movie. It's about life. It's about what people do when the camera is on them, when the spotlight's on them all the time, when they've got money to spend and women banging at their door or, or men, if you're, if you're a woman, you know, like whatever. To me, it's definitely unique in that way because it's it's about a lot more than just football, which a lot of a lot of movies are. I think when you boil down to it, most of them are about life, but this shows you life, you know, in its grittiest form. It's intense, and I think it's more unique than just about all of them, in my opinion. Definitely, I think that what it does differently is gets in the underbelly of the NFL, whereas the other ones will focus more on you know an individual underdog team or a walk-on, you know, a fan who becomes a, a star of a team. Some Cinderella story usually is what we get. Formulaic, enjoyable. We like those too, but this is something else. A real avant-garde slash high art film. This is a film about a world. I could mm-hmm. list so many films, Killing of a Chinese Bookie or, <sighs> I don't know, Chinatown or Scarface. Throw Scarface. Uh-huh. Let's throw another Al Pacino one. They're trying to depict a culture, uh, an economy, 
just an infrastructure of life, I like to think of it. And those are my favorite films. They, you really understand a milieu differently because the creators have done their research and probed into the world and then materialized it on the screen. And that's what this film does. It's almost not so much about football as it is about the world surrounding it but it still brings some great football moments as well. Mm -hmm. um, so any last thoughts or opinions um, before we sign off today on Any Given Sunday? No, I think we pretty well covered it. <laughs> nice. Once again, your podcast is... SEC Tavern Talk. Hopefully you'll have some sports to talk about soon. Thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, my pleasure, man. I enjoyed it. All right. So, Paul, it's that time of the show where I ask you, is this a underdog or an overrated film? I would have no trouble saying that this is an underdog. Uh, so I kind of want to just dig deeper into where this fits in my overall ranking of sports films. And the fact that I brought it in my top three at the beginning, I would say it still belongs there right now after seeing it two more times. I think it's robustly positioned and I don't see it being knocked off anytime soon. But uh, we have a lot of films that we're going to tackle and I will definitely bring it up if something in my mind is more visceral and raw and real than this. So what about you? Do you think this is a underdog or overrated film? I will say I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you on this. I think it's a underdog. As I went to go watch this when I first put this on, I was kind of worried I was going to say it's actually like overrated because at first some of those random shots of the sky were kind of like jarring me weird really right it's like sticking out at me weirdly but as again as we've discussed through, throughout this episode just the way it parallels today's nfl and the foresight it had just it, i put it on such a high pedestal still on my list i like that you said that because i feel that in a response as well to a lot of the reviews that this film has a lot of interesting parts and a lot of misfires but what i take from it is by sitting through the whole two hours and 35 minutes whatever of the director's cut the sum total of its parts, to me, the composite totality of everything, just it sinks in finally by the end. And I'm like, wow, that really experienced the NFL. And so it all pays off just because of its uh, multiplicity, its cacophony. Sorry, it's just a minor thing I liked about it. I always liked the way he just uses the credits in this movie. He uses everything, every chance you get to convey narrative and story and build this little world out is used. I remember sitting in the theater to watch the end credits and some people leaving, but still being such a, a punchline that Tony's leaving Florida. And I remember as a kid thinking that's, that's a happy ending. And as we talk about today, it's much more complicated than that second viewing, which, I, which is another reason I think it's just an underrated movie. It's, it's, it's a movie worth thinking about as you watch it. It is a happy ending as a traditional viewer. Uh, because you're watching this through Al Pacino's lens more than anyone else's. It's a redemptive moment for him where he has a, a, a rebirth of sorts. But as an adult, you do see that it's a complicated and ironic and, and strangely ambiguous and ambivalent as well ending. Uh, it leaves you just kind of stumped, not knowing exactly what to think. And that's, I think, the best way to feel at the end of a film for me. So next week, um, we're going to segue into a film that I think will touch really nicely upon a lot of the topics and themes brought up in any given Sunday in a totally different way. And that's Concussion, Will Smith's film that I believe almost received Academy Awards. I mean, maybe it was nominated. So we're getting into a more serious drama that isn't really a traditional sports film. There's very little sports in it. It's more about a immigrant, I believe from Nigeria, major doctor, and finds out about these cognitive and psychological disorders that are coming from the ramifications of having too many concussions and going on a crusade to make this well-known and to campaign for policies. I've seen it, but it's been a while, so I'm excited to see it again. It's not fresh in my mind at all. Um, have you seen this film yet? No, I don't think I've seen Concussion. 
but I am excited to watch it considering like we just talked about shark and just the way concussions are portrayed in this one. As I recall, it was critically acclaimed, but amongst general audiences, it wasn't very well liked, at least from conversations I've had. I'm just compare the two depictions of that issue. Yeah, I mean, it's highly politicized because people are divided about mm. this topic in the first place, even though it's becoming more and more acceptable to fall on the side of being hyper cautious and pro- Pro-brain safety? Yeah, pro-brain safety. But it's like the number one pastime in our culture. And there's so much money around it that they're not going to just capitulate to these new medical findings because people have played it for a long time, for decades, been centuries. And they're not going to just forfeit a game because we know a little bit more. There's consequences in life. And it's about weighing consequences and risk and also trying to live your life. It's gonna be a heady film. It's not gonna be about football as a sport that's played, but it's gonna be more of a medical film and it'll be an interesting departure, but I think it'll be uh, interesting. Any final comments about something that you are interested in in concussion? I'm gonna compare Will Smith looks like that, compared to that movie he just did where he did the CGI and looks like he's in the 90s. I'm doing comparison pieces with Will Smith. <laughs> All visual yeah. on this. I'm, I'm looking at Independence Day, looking at this. I'm just tra- tracing Will Smith's aging through the last 20 years. Will Smith is a classic actor, and it's a really strong role of his. So I'm actually surprised that you have a lot of people you've heard that didn't like it. He definitely thralls you as a viewer. I do remember that. Next week's concussion, and thanks for listening today. Hope to see you next time.